Section 10 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 An Ocean Tragedy, Part 2. On April 5th, the coast of Brazil was made about Rio Grande, and here they lost touch of the fair weather that had attended them. Sudden fogs accompanied with heavy weather scattered the ships and drove them one after another deep into the mouth of the La Plata in search of water and shelter. It was not till the end of the month that they all got together again, and Drake, resuming his command of the Pelican, ventured to continue his course to the south with his reassembled fleet. But no sooner had he doubled Point Piedras than another storm struck them, and the victualler parted company. Doughty was still on board of her, and Drake, who, like other sailors, had his superstitions, began to think his Jonas were brewing the bad weather. They had never ceased to tamper with the men, and in his anxiety to discredit the admiral and advance his brother's party, John Doughty had used his Hebrew and Greek to claim acquaintance with the black art. The incessant gales which Drake encountered as he struggled southward in search of a port to reorganize the squadron did little to remove his suspicions. The ships were continually losing touch, and so sure as they attempted to ride, a gale would tear them from their anchors. Did Drake venture inshore with his pinnace to explore the coast, a squall would strike him so suddenly that only by the daring seamanship of his officers could he be rescued from destruction his brother in the prize was missing altogether and the victualler with its uncanny passenger had not been seen since it first parted company at point piedras for six weary weeks the struggle southward continued till five degrees north of magellan's passage port desire was discovered here the storm-beaten fleet found rest and now at the moment when all danger seemed over the victualler mysteriously reappeared to enjoy the security. But this was not all. Her master had to report that not only had Doughty never ceased to disparage the admiral and make himself appear as the real commander of the expedition, but that he had done all in his power to get Mr. Chester, the gentleman captain of the victualler, to quarrel with the master and defy his authority so serious had the situation on board become that some one had even gone so far as to remind the offender of the fate of magellan's mutinous vice-admiral but doughty had only laughed and said drake had no authority of life and death and gallows were for dogs not gentlemen even if drake's power of life and death was ever intended to apply to the officers and gentlemen of the fleet it is highly improbable that he had all contemplated such an extremity. But it is certain that he was bent on upholding the authority of the sea officers, and that Doughty, with Burley's instructions and his own end in view, was deliberately fomenting the jealousy between them and the gentlemen. Still Drake seems not to have despaired of bringing his friend to reason. Being in want of firewood and desirous of making his squadron more compact, he resolved to break up the victualler of which there was no longer need and while the work was going on he once more took doughty on his own ship but so persistently did he continue his efforts to paralyze the expedition that one day in a fit of exasperation drake ordered him 
to be bound to the mast it was an ignominious sea punishment well designed to teach the gentlemen their place but the matter did not end there the continued friction was fast chafing drake's masterful spirit to a dangerous heat and as soon as the offender was released both he and his brother were ordered on board the smack christopher at last the conspirators began to be alarmed it was tom moon's ship and the trusty old carpenter was the very pattern of a pirate's lieutenant truculent fearless and devoted he was drake's chosen instrument for deeds he dare not own and reading murder in the grim seaman's eyes the brothers refused to obey drake's order his only reply was to direct tackle to be rigged to sling them on board on june third the four vessels that were still together again stood southward hoping to find that thomas drake's lost vessel had preceded them again they encountered adverse gales again the vessel which carried the dowdies parted company and again after drake had desisted from the hopeless struggle southward and was running back up the coast she reappeared he was now convinced that the weather was due to sorcery and determined to make his squadron still more compact he resolved to abandon the christopher tom moon was taken on board the pelican and the dowdies were handed over to captain winter on the elizabeth with strict orders that no one should speak to them and that neither of them should be allowed to read or write anything but what a man could see and understand it is easy to smile at such credulity but rather should we bow before the undaunted spirit which oppressed as it was by imagined terrors could yet bravely lift the load of opposition which each day grew more real for now the crisis of the voyage was at hand the harassed admiral had given the order to stand onward as far south as the latitude of magellan's straits every man in the fleet knew at last for what he had been brought so far and at any time drake might find mutiny staring him in the face the least credulous might well believe that they were already in the confines of that fabulous stormland in which thomas drake and their comrades in the prize seemed already engulfed as they knew the world it was summer-time and yet as they painfully beat southward at every league the skies grew more wintry and the sea more tempestuous till with infinite toil having reached the required latitude for the third time they were hurled back it was an ill wind but as though drake's precautions had paralyzed the dowdy's magic it blew him to his brother so severely however was the prize found to have suffered in the storms that drake resolved to put in at port st julian to finally refit for the desperate attempt it was the natural harbour where sixty years ago magellan had made his last preparations and well-nigh overwhelmed with fatigue and anxiety drake entered it in safety on june twentieth it was like the end of the earth for six months he had been sailing out into a world on which god's back seemed turned yet there it was upon the shore of that forsaken wilderness that the first sign of christian men fell upon his eyes and that sign was the stump of magellan's gallows what wonder if as drake with troubled brow gazed upon that jagged fir post the ghost of the old admiral's resolution whispered in his ear and he saw amidst 
the desolation a sign from heaven buried at its foot were found the skeletons of the two mutinous officers while on board the elizabeth the presence of the prisoners was fast demoralizing winter's ship's company it was clear the situation could not continue though doughty was still confident that the admiral dare not exercise his powers upon a gentleman but he knew not his friend nor could he measure the spirit to which the formulas that bind the world in chains are but as threads drake was no man to suffer a great purpose to be strangled with the phrases of a parchment by the old law of england an offender could be always condemned by the judgment of his peers and so by first principles he cut the knot on the last day of june the crews were summoned ashore and there over against the gallows of magellan drake sat in judgment upon his dearest friend the time-hallowed forms of the english law were reverently preserved a jury was impanelled with winter at its head and solemn articles were read which charged the prisoner where he stood with mutiny and treason then with bitter taunts and acrimonious evidence the wrangling trial went on hearsay prejudice and abuse were heaped on the wretched prisoner's head in a way that shocks us now to read but such was then the everyday scene in the old courts of england where our liberties were shaped and few prisoners fared so well at westminster for another century as did thomas doughty at that first lynch court amidst the desolation of patagonia though every one believed him guilty of treason he was acquitted because the evidence was insufficient an unusual piece of clemency in days when juries were expected to convict on their general impressions it was not till they had found him guilty of mutiny that drake produced any evidence himself at the beginning of the trial he had protested that it was no matter of life and death but in the midst of one of the sorry wranglings doughty boasted of having betrayed the queen's secret to lord burleigh then at last the whole truth burst upon drake and he knew the case was even more desperate than he had thought leaving the traitor standing alone with his brother he called the companies down to the shore and laid his heart bare to them he told them the whole story of the expedition from first to last he told them what it meant and asked them what a man deserved who had conspired to overthrow so great an undertaking they that think this man worthy of death he cried out at the last let them with me hold up their hands and as the words left his lips a throng of brown hands surrounded him on the second day from the trial the tragedy was played out winter it is said made an effort to save the culprit but drake's hand was set firm upon the plough on an island over against the relic of magellan the block was placed and beside it an altar where side by side the two friends knelt to receive together the sacrament in token of forgiveness hard by tables were spread with the best the stores provided and where they all caroused together in a farewell banquet to their comrade when the feast was ended with courtly jests doughty drew near the block and the boon companions gathered round at the last as one who had lost in a game of hazard he embraced the friend who had won and drake took payment without a flinch he showed no animus nor did sentiment sap his purposes one jot like everything else his affection had to be sacrificed to the mission 
Dowdy had stood in the way of the great lesson he meant to teach his country, and he had been honorably removed. That was all. So the sword fell, and when the provost marshal held up the dripping head, Drake cried out unmoved, Lo, this is the end of traitors. What wonder if his heart was hardened? What wonder if it was said of him afterwards that he was a man hard to reconcile? Such a tragedy might well have poisoned altogether a nature less magnanimous. He would always speak of his friend with love and admiration, but the memory of his treason never failed to rouse in Drake something that made him terrible to his officers. John Doughty he spared with a wise clemency, but the rest had still to be taught the lesson which the dead man had so hardly learnt. As the work of cleaning and refitting went on, the tension between the gentlemen and the sailors continued, till Drake could endure it no longer. He was overwrought and desperate with the troubles that beset him. A month went by, and then once more he called the companies ashore. The chaplain thought it was for a sermon, but Drake said he would preach himself that day, and a wholesome sermon it was. He told them the mutinous discords must cease or the voyage would be overthrown. I must have the gentleman to haul and draw with the mariner, he said, and the mariner with the gentleman. I would know him that would refuse to set his hand to a rope. He offered the marigold to any who wished to go back. But let them take heed, he said, that they go homeward, for if I find them in my way, I will surely sink them. With one accord they all consented to go on and leave the wages to him. Then, turning to Captain Winter, who stood at his side, he dismissed him his ship and cashiered every officer in the squadron. They asked him why. Is there any reason why I should not, he retorted. As he grew more excited, he rounded upon the traitors that he knew, and in terror they humbled themselves at his feet. So in triumph he told them once more how it was the queen who had sent him out, and how they had come to set the kings of the earth by the ears, and warned them of the fate that awaited them if the voyage turned out a failure. With that, as suddenly as before, he restored every man to the rank of which he had just been deprived, and with cheery words of hope and kindliness he dismissed them to their duty. From that moment his reputation as a disciplinarian was unrivaled. The state of his ships was a wonder to all who saw them, and Spaniards themselves considered his men as comparable only to their own Italian legions. No more was heard of the quarrels and jealousy. The work went rapidly on, the prize had been broken up to supply the other three ships with firewood, and on August 20th, 1578, the three ships that remained hove to before the Straits of Magellan. End of Section 10